It was just about a year ago, almost to the day, that I stood on the stage and brought a message. And it was a few days after one of my closest friends had lost his 13-year-old son in a tragic accident. And that was a tragic and difficult time for me, and it was a difficult message for me to speak that day. And so this past week on the anniversary of his son's death, I called Bill, and I asked how he was doing. And he said, Al, this has been the most painful year of my life. Julie and I have struggled, but God has shown up. He has been there for us. He's comforted us. All I can say is he, he has shown up, and I know he's got a plan for this. I hung up the phone, and, and I have to admit, I, I kind of cried out to God. It's like, Lord, I, you know I love you. You know I'm your son. But I don't understand why you couldn't have shown up earlier in the day of the accident, prevented the accident. I know you were capable of that. I don't understand And I think Jesse could have that same question. Why didn't God show up years earlier? And maybe there's some of you today, maybe some of you have lost a loved one, and the cry of your heart was, God, where were you? Maybe you're going through a difficult situation right now, maybe with a child and, or a relationship, and you're crying out, God, where are you? Maybe you've been persevering and struggling through for some period of time in a, in a tough job situation or maybe a marriage and your cry of your heart is, God, when will you ever show up? And those are all such, such profound and important questions. In my message today, I'm going to try to address those questions. And, and here are the two takeaways I want you to have today. Number one, God is good. God is good. And number two, his timing is always perfect. Now, we're beginning a a new series today called Simply Christmas. I think you see the graphic. What we're going to do is we're going to look over the next few weeks at some of the biblical principles surrounding Christmas. And today, what we're looking at, since it's the first in the series, is the the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the God of the universe as a human being onto this earth. And that, uh, we're going to look at the, the gospel of Luke. Now, Luke was himself not a Jew. In fact, he was a Gentile, probably a Greek, but we know he was an educated man. In fact, he was a doctor. We learn that because Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, and he wrote the, the book of Acts, which is the early history of the church. And in the book of Acts, he re- reveals himself as a doctor. And, and as a scientist, as an investigator, he had this keen investigative empirical mind. He wanted facts. He wanted details. And we see that early on in the book of Luke. He's actually writing all the things that his investigation has found. He's writing to his other Gentile friends, the other Greeks, and he's trying to explain to them that I've done a thorough investigation, just like any doctor, just like any scientist, and I'm writing these things down. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 1. I think we have uh, those verses 1 through 4. The very first verses of the book of Luke, and he says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me 
to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of these things that you have been taught. Theophilus, what we know, and and much of this is from the historical documents, not from the Bible, secular history written by historians at the time, and then church history and tradition. Theophilus was a government official. And, and himself uh, a Greek and a Gentile and, and a, and a God-seeker. He wanted to try to understand. And apparently, Luke was writing to him because he was interested in these events. And the book of Acts is also written to most excellent Theophilus as, as Luke documents the history of the early church. And so, that is the background of Luke. And the passage today is out of Luke chapter 2. And it's going to be a familiar passage. And this is what Luke says. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. You can see from this account that Luke is trying to put the context of Jesus coming into this world in in historical uh, context. He's he's saying, look, you can look these things up. This was a time when Caesar Augustus was the emperor of the whole earth. This was a time when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and had ordered a census. And in fact, as you go to Josephus and other historians of this era, we see that all those are documented in the historical books, non-religious books of the time. This is not Greek theology, folks. This is not some mythology from the past. These are historical documents documented by a scientific mind and an investigator who wanted to ensure that we could go back and check on his accounts. And as we do, we see that, yes, 2,000 years ago, there's historical documents that show that this, this person named Jesus was born in the small country called Israel. But the burning question today, as we sit here and and talk about God's timing, is why was Jesus born a little over 2,000 years ago? Why not 3,000 years ago? Why not 500 years ago? Why 2,000 years ago? And and I've studied the commentaries uh, about this year. I've, I've looked at the books of theology. I've studied the Bible, and I have a definitive answer to you. And that is, we don't know, and we never will. And, and look, I, I, we have to be, be humble here, folks. I love my father. I became a Christian when I was 37 years old. I had this amazing relationship with the God of the universe. I, I know him personally, and I trust him completely. I think you all know me well enough to know how much I love God and trust him. But I still think it's okay to ask him questions. He's given me a curious mind. I want to learn. I want to understand. And so I'm asking, why then? And the more I ask, the less I seem to hear on that particular issue. But don't forget the two principles that we want to talk about today. God is good, and his timing is always perfect. 
This has been a question that people have asked from time immemorial. So how do we know that God is good? You know, as we try to understand this, we're not going to understand it. It's sort of like if, you know, I have a dog, and sometimes I talk to my dog, and you've seen a dog kind of turn his head trying to understand me, right? And he said, boy, Scout, my dog, you're never going to understand me. I'm so much smarter than you. And that's true. You would laugh if you could get in Scout's mind. He says, I think I can understand as well as Al. He'd say, Dude, give it up, Scout. No, no way. But the difference in intellect between Scout and I is like from the floor to maybe to my head, where the difference between God's intellect and mine is like from my head to like across the universe. Does that make sense? There is a much greater distance between my ability to understand and reason between me and God as there is between my dog and me. And so as we ask these questions, we have to be humble. Sometimes God does give me answers to questions, and I, and I so appreciate that. But sometimes they're just beyond me. And so there's two things I take comfort in in this particular area, and the first is that God is good. Now, how do I know that God is good? Well, the first way is he says it in his scripture. I mean, we all believe that Jesus was an honest man. If, if nothing else, we believe Jesus was always telling the truth. And at one point in his ministry, someone came up to Jesus and said, Good teacher. And he turned around and he said, Why do you call me good? God alone is good. Jesus himself said God is good. And throughout the scripture, God reveals that he is good. Over and over, we see it in the way he interacts with people. And just as importantly, since the Bible is God's humble uh, decision to reveal himself to us, he tells us, about his characteristics. He tells us that he's faithful, that his love is from everlasting to everlasting. He tells us that he's going to give us mercy. He tells us he's going to be gracious to us. He tells us he's going to be faithful to us. He tells us he's going to be loving to us. This is a good God. But there's there's another way that I know God's goodness. Like I said, I became a Christian when I was 37. I've I've been journeying with God for 26 years. There have been literally millions, millions of instances during the journey where God has revealed himself in a very personal way, a way of faithfulness. He's demonstrated loving kindness. He's demonstrated patience. He's demonstrated his graciousness and his strength and his humility to me in more ways than I can possibly express. And maybe to help you understand that, I can't prove that to you, right? And you say, well, how can you be so sure? Well, you know, I've been on a journey with one other person for longer than God. God's been 26 years. I've been on a marriage journey with Jan for 31 years. And I can tell you, in tens of thousands, if not millions of ways, Jan has demonstrated her faithfulness to me, her patience toward me, her loving kindness towards me, her wisdom towards me, to the point where right now I would stake my life that she will be with me until death do us part. I have no doubt. I'm I'm certain of that to the very last fiber of my being. Can I prove that to you? Can I show it to you on a screen or in a test tube? Of course not. But I know it to be true. And so here's what I want to say. If you want to know about the goodness of God, go on a journey with him. And what I want to encourage you, if you don't find that God is good, if you find that he's not a good God, with all due respect and all humility, what you ought to do is walk out that door and not come back. 
because I don't know about you, I am not going to follow a God that's not good. I, I just, I won't. If you, if you study his word and you journey with him and you decide this is not a good God, then you ought to get on with the rest of your life and make it on your own as best you can. But if you decide that he is a good God, that has to be the foundation for every question from there forward. And that's really what my friend Bill Barfield, who I called this past week, was saying, wasn't it? He said, I know there has to be a plan. And and we just look forward to seeing what God's plan was in taking our 13-year-old son. And what he was really saying is, God, I've put to rest the question of whether God is good. I know that he is good. And therefore, there must be a reason why he didn't prevent the accidental death of my son. So first and foremost, you have to put to rest the question of whether God is good. And then you can get to the second question. The second question, is he always on time? And the answer is yes. His timing is always perfect. We see that throughout the scripture. We see it everywhere from the beginning. Over and over, it looks like God has missed the mark. He's missed the boat. He's late or he's early. And over and over, as he unfolds in his scripture, we see he's always on time every time. One of my favorite examples of this this, is in John chapter 11. It's a passage that that most of you are familiar with. It's the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus dies and Jesus raises him from the dead. But what you may not remember is that Jesus gets gets, uh, word that Lazarus is sick. And he decides to go, but he waits. He delays. And, and when they get word that he's sick, his, his, the 12 apostles are like, okay, Lord, I guess we're going to Lazarus. He goes, no, we're not. And they can't figure it out. They say, well, wait a minute, he's sick, he needs you. He says, no, we're going to wait. And as it begins to unfold, Jesus finally reveals that it was important, his perfect timing was to wait until after Lazarus died. And here's what the scripture says in in John 11. And we don't have that up here. Sorry, I forgot to send it to them. Um, After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. That's Jesus talking. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead now listen, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him now. You see, they thought he had messed up. They thought he had made a mistake. But Jesus knew there was a greater good in waiting. And he, he gets there, and two of his favorite women on earth, two, two of his, his closest friends who were women were Mary and Martha. And you may remember the story. Martha and Mary fall at, her feet, fall at his feet weeping. And what does Jesus do when he sees that? Jesus wept. He knew the pain that he was putting them through. They couldn't understand. In fact, Mary said, Lord, where were you? If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. She thought he had missed the mark on his timing. And Jesus weeps, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And because of that, Mary and Martha put their faith in Jesus, and the apostles, some of the apostles, put their faith in Jesus. There was a greater good. His timing 
was perfect. We see that over and over throughout the Bible. There's, there's another example. In fact, it's explicitly stated where Jesus' timing or God's timing is perfect. And that's in Romans 5. And, and this is, and this is uh, you know, the book of Romans is, is a book of theology and, and other principles of God. And Paul is describing Jesus coming into the world. And this is what he has to say. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone may possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see the principle. Now we have the answer to our question. Why was Jesus born during the reign of Caesar Augustus? And Paul answers that. You see, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And folks, that's really the gospel, isn't it? You see, what Luke was writing about was the gospel. He was writing an account, a historical account of news that had occurred. This is what separates Christianity from every other faith. Buddhism was written by Buddha. Confucianism, Confucius. Islam was by Muhammad. All these men felt that they got somehow some close to God, and, and they figured out what rules you could follow to, to get right with God, and they wrote them down. And what they would say is they say to their followers, you know, as far as I can tell, here are the rules we have to follow, and if you follow them, maybe you'll get there. Maybe you'll be good enough. Let's hope so. That's what virtually every religion in the world says. Folks, Christianity is not a religion. It is news of historical event that happened 2,000 years ago. And that's what Luke was doing. He wrote down this historical event. He wrote down, folks, you need to understand this. Something amazing has happened. The God of the universe has come to earth. He's sacrificed himself on the cross. He's paid the penalty that we should have paid. He's paid the debt. He's taken our punishment upon us and reconciled us to God. And here's the good news. You don't have any rules to follow. If you put your faith in Jesus, and do your best to follow him and be a follower of Jesus, then you will be with him and reconcile with him forever. If you have never just taken that step of faith, why not today during this Advent season? This is the good news. It would not be good news if we had a bunch of rules to follow for the rest of our life, never knowing if we're going to be right with God. It is great news. It is the gospel that it is completed, it is finished. We can never be good enough, but Jesus paid our debt and reconciled us to God. Why not put your faith in that? And here's an interesting thing. Over the centuries, when people have put their faith in God, something has happened in them. They've been moved by the fact that Jesus gave everything on their behalf and they've wanted to give to others. And they've been moved by the fact that this is good news, and they've wanted to share that commitment with others. And that's really what our Honduras water projects are all about. Every year, 12 of us guys go down there with Mark Smith, the head of Impact, and we are moved by compassion. We're moved by the desire. God has given so much to us, we want to share with others. And we also want to share the good news. And, and Mark Smith, who started Impact, has been journeying with, with God and been a pastor for over 40 years. 
And he's been doing water projects for over 30 years. And, and I've never seen a man who combines these passions, the compassion to give back just some of what Jesus gave him and the passion to share the gospel, the good news with others like Mark Smith. And so one of the things we can do, if you're moved by compassion, if you are moved by the fact that Jesus gave everything, you need to understand that God instructs us to give back something of what he's given us, to give. You see, I think God wants us to experience the joy of giving that he experienced. God doesn't need our money, folks. He just doesn't. But the scripture says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so in this Christmas season, one of the things we encourage people at Rock Hills to do is spend less on presents, give more. And one of the places we can give, you know, we'd love for you to give to the church, but that isn't, that isn't the point of me talking about giving. It really isn't. Another place you can give is to impact water because these projects cost money. And every year, our church, the faithful people here contribute, and we are able to build a water system in Honduras. And we have a little video clip of that, what that looks like. Take a look here. It's an amazing thing to be in the middle of the Honduran mountains and to provide a fresh, clean water system for a village of over 45 homes. I was talking to the teacher in this village. She said for over 41 years, the children have not had clean water. She said periodically, she takes five to six inch worms out of their throats because of the parasites. It totally affects all the village. We come in with our engineer who's out of one of these villages. He's got a master's in engineering. He engineers the whole system. It's very simple. We find a water source. We encapsulate it in concrete and run a pipe from the water source. And then we build an 8,000 gallon water tank like you see behind me. That run may be as far as eight miles. We dig and bury all the pipes underneath the ground. We take the water tank then we run a line all the way to each home so that each home can turn it on and have clean water. Periodically, the tank is drained and scrubbed. All the Honduran men are trained, and this system never breaks down. Our first system that we built almost 25 years ago is still working today. Thanks that you can be a part of something so miraculous and so life-changing as we bring clean water to these villages. We will be collecting for Impact Water over the next several weeks, and we hope that you'll search your heart again in this time of Christmas. We're encouraging everybody to spend less in presents, to give more, whether that's to Impact or Rock Hills or some other place you want to give. Please do that. You know, as I was praying this week and, and trying to communicate this whole idea of God's timing and, and, and where is he and what, when does he show up, the, the story of William Whiting Borden came to my mind. This, a hundred years ago, almost a hundred years ago, he died in 1916. Almost a hundred years ago, this story was all over the newspapers. Because William Whiting Borden was the son of the man who founded the Borden Milk uh, Conglomerate and was one of the wealthiest men in the world. And if you walk down a side street in Cairo, Egypt, a dirty, garbage-filled street, you might see this. That is the grave of William Whiting Borden, one of the most wealthy men in the world. 
And on the tombstone is written, apart from faith in Jesus, this life makes no sense. Let me tell you a story. He was born just outside Chicago in 1887. The oldest son of the Borden uh, multi, probably today would be a billionaire. Be like being Bill Gates' son. His mother was a strong believer and took him to church. And somewhere in junior high or high school, God got hold of his heart. And he became this, this just Christian who was passionate for God. And, and after a few years, before he graduated high school, he went to his mother and father. He said, I think I want to be a missionary and share the good news around the world. His mother was excited. His father, not so much. He said, no, you don't want to do that. You need to take over the, the company. You need to take over Borden's Milk. And so he sent him off to Yale College in, in Connecticut, thinking, okay, I'm going to get him a business degree. By the time he's done at Yale, this crazy idea of being a, a missionary, that's going to be gone. While at Yale, he starts a Bible study and a prayer group. During the four years he's at Yale, there's only 1,600 students. Over 600 students are involved in his Bible studies and prayer groups, almost half of the student body. And about... Somewhere around his junior year, he came home and said, Dad, I still want to be a missionary. This is what God is calling me to do. And his father looked at him. He said, you become a missionary, and you're on your own. You will get none of the family money. You're going to have to make it just like any other missionary. And, and William Borden apparently was surprised by that. And that was difficult for him. He always figured he'd have his family reserves to, to fall back on as, as he tried to spread the good news of Jesus. As he prayed through that and, and tried to figure out what was going on, he finally realized God was calling him to be a missionary anyway. In the back of his Bible, he wrote, no reserves. He wasn't going to rely on the reserves, the, the monetary reserves of his family. And, and over the next year or two, as he was preparing to, to go, he, he felt called to, to northern Africa and Islamic nations. And as he shared this with friends, they'd bring him more and more news reports about North Africa, about Egypt, about the disease there and how people died young because of all the horrible diseases. And, and then there became violence. And, and just like in today's day, day and age, Christian missionaries were, were murdered over there. And they began to give him more reports because, hey, are you crazy? You don't want to go over there. You'll die of some disease or somebody's going to kill you. And he began to feel a little fear. And again, he prayed through that. And finally, God gave him a peace. And under the no reserves in the back of his Bible, he wrote, no retreat. No retreat. I'm not going to retreat from this idea. And finally, he goes over, he makes his way to, to Cairo, Egypt. He's going to take a, a couple of language courses and in a month or two being in the missionary field. Three weeks after he gets to Cairo, he contracts meningitis. In that day and age, it was a death sentence. Over the next three weeks, William Whiting Borden died a painful death from meningitis. That was in 1916. That made news all over the world. Like I said, it would be like Bill Gates' son dying. Almost every paper in America had it on the front page. Almost every paper in America talked about, what a waste. This guy could have been the head of his father's company. He could have done amazing things with the money. He gets over there. He does, hasn't even shared the gospel with anybody, and he dies. What a waste. His mother, of course, is devastated. She, she's crying out to God, where were you? 
About a month later, she gets his personal effects, including his Bible. And she looks through it, and she finally gets to the back. And she sees no reserves, no retreat. And that just two days before his death, he wrote, no regrets. She was so moved by that that she wrote an opinion editorial that was published in virtually every paper explaining that he had no regrets, that he was so committed that he went because he was called by God and it wasn't up to him to decide what impact that would have. But she still cried out to God, why, Lord? And the news began to pour in from Yale. Over 100 students decided they were going to go into the missionary field because of the commitment that he had shown. And the news reports began to flood in from around the country. Hundreds of college students decided they were going to go be missionaries because they were so inspired by his story. And, and as far as anyone can tell, almost a thousand missionaries were launched from the shores of this earth, from, from this country, because of William Whiting Borden. No reserves, no retreat, no regret. Folks, I don't know what you're going through. I know there's a lot going on in this community. But here's two truths you need to hold on to with all your strength. God is good. And his timing is always perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the reminder from Jesse that you, your timing is always perfect in our lives. A very personal reminder. Thank you from the reminder of my friend, Bill, that you will always show up. Thank you from the reminder of the William Borden story that you always have a purpose and a plan. Thank you that you have displayed on an earthly level your faithfulness to me through my incredible wife, Jan. Thank you for being my loving father, and I know, I know you are good. And Father, please, would you, would you come here today, just move in my friends at Rock Hills and, and do amazing things in their heart. Allow them to see your goodness and your truth, and allow them to, to really experience the reality that your timing is always perfect. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.